0: Blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as someone who had, as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. Um, can you pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, we thank you so much for this time um, that we've taken out of our busy schedules um, to come and um, hear about you and worship you pray that you'll um, open our hearts to receive and bless us it has prepared for us you know we pray Amen.
1: hello <laughs> come on <laughs> it's our last one for some of us that's great to hear from you good to see you all i'm excited um, i'm gonna move this sorry my awkward fiddling with the music stand. It wouldn't really be REF if I didn't do this moment of just kind of fun awkwardness. So uh, we doing okay? We hanging in there? I'm going to do something I never do, which is I'm going to take a picture. Is that okay? I I really debated doing this, and I'm just going to do it. Um, I got a little emotional during the song, and so I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do it. So here we go. Ready? <laughs> yeah. You're on a roller coaster. I promise you I'll preach in a second. And go. Kevin, I've seen more excitement. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So anyway, thanks for coming. This is our last large group of the semester. Um, my interns really wanted me to do a selfie. I just couldn't bring myself to do the selfie, I'm really sorry. Uh, I think my head's really big, so it really makes me self-conscious. Um, confessions, confessions. Um, anyway, this is our last large group. I'm really excited you're here. It's the last official large group uh, of the semester, but also if you're a senior, this is our last time together like this. Um, and before I say my usual introduction about what RUF is and, and, and all of that, I just want to say thank you, everyone, but especially thank you seniors for taking your time out to come and celebrate with us, uh, to not just tonight, but the many times, the many places, the many ways that you've loved us as a community over the last four years. Um, that's kind of what I'm getting choked up about. So I really appreciate just the ways that I've been able to do life with you at Davidson, And the ways that you kind of come alongside us and RUF and really loved this community, um, as battered and broken as it can be sometimes. So, thank you for that. And uh, I'll say a little more throughout our little time together, our sermon, but I did just want to say thanks. And I also did want to just mention two really important highlights. Speaking of seniors, Victoria Frost, where are you? (laughs) Somebody put a ring on it. Somebody put a ring on it. (laughs) All right. So if you didn't know that, if you're not on social media, there you go. Um, Also, Hannah Merck, is she here? Oh, no! It's her birthday. So anyway, (laughs) special dispensation. Uh, She is is turning, I don't know how old, but she says her birthday. So anyway, spread the good word. Okay. For those who don't know me, I'm Sid Druin, uh, and I'm the campus minister for RUF, Reformed University Fellowship, which is a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve the campus and you all, wherever you are and however you are. And we mean that. We don't want to be a place that just serves one scene on campus. We want to be a place that's meant for every person on campus, every kind of person. whether No matter what your personal background is, no matter what your social scene is on campus, we hope you feel welcomed and we hope that uh, we can do a good job of welcoming you in. Uh, We also mean that spiritually, wherever you are, Christianity or Jesus, we're really glad you're here. Uh, Thanks for taking the time and the risk to to be with us. Whether you call yourself a believer or an unbeliever, whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced or somewhere in between or none of the above, we're really glad you're here. So thanks so much for taking the time. and also, if, this is, if you're new, if like the, like the last few weeks, this is your time that you came and visited us. We're so glad for that. Thank you for taking that time, too. We really appreciate that. Um, anyway, all right. So we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount, as you saw from the reading. We've been doing it the whole semester, and we're going to finish it tonight. So we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' sermon in Matthew's chapters 5 through 7. And as I've said before, these words of Jesus are famous Uh, I would argue that they're essential Christian reading. And what do I mean by that? These words in this sermon, in these three chapters of Matthew, have been central to every generation and every culture's uh, understanding of what it means to be a Christian. What is Christianity? People have gone back to this text to look and to figure it out. But whether you call yourself a Christian or you do not feel comfortable calling yourself a Christian tonight, uh, we all tend to read the Sermon of the Mount the same as three more chapters of really good advice I should just get around to. Uh, and I just want you to take a deep breath, and I want you to read these with me as they're meant to be read. Jesus meant this as an invitation. He's inviting us to see our lives and to see the world differently with spiritual imagination. And tonight's passage is really going to be an example of that. This is maybe Jesus at his most personal and most imaginative. He's in, it's just a... a, a concluding speech and uh, concluding thought from Matthew at the end of the speech that are perfect for people thinking about the next life step and also people thinking about the next final or paper or problem set. I think it's going to meet you where you are in either of those spaces and so um, I hope it does. And In regard to that, let's pray together. Would you pray with me and for us and to encounter Jesus' words? Father um, Still our hearts, still my heart. Help us um, to sit at your feet. Help us to learn from you. I pray, Jesus, that you would be high and lifted up. That you'd be more believable, more beautiful to the eyes of our hearts. That you would meet us wherever we are with this passage and with you. Um, would you pursue us again? Would you find us where we are? Would you remind us of who we are and who you are? I pray that this would be a sermon about that, and that you'd use these words from your book, and that you would press them to our hearts, and that you'd um, remind us of your goodness and your truth and your beauty. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when I was in graduate school in Orlando, Florida... I had an older friend and a mentor named Roger. Roger, uh, like his name sounds, was very kind. And he and I would get together a lot and he would tell this one story. You know these people, they tell the same story over and over and over again. He told this story in multiple different ways, multiple times, and he returned to it in key moments in our conversations over the course of, of of a year or two. In fact, Roger told this story so often with such emotion that I took the story to be more than amusing for him. It became kind of a defining metaphor for his life. This memory so captured Roger's life that it took on its own life for me. In some ways, I've been wrestling, inhabiting this story along with Roger ever since I heard it the first time and then heard it several times later. Uh, And I think it gets at something universal inside of us all. Uh, I'd never really heard the whole story from start to finish, it was one of those stories that he would just sort of reference, and um, so here's what I understand of the story. I'm not going to talk about the story, not tell you the story, I'll tell you the story. <laughs> when Roger reached his 30s or 40s, he decided to build a log cabin in the woods of Pennsylvania, and he's living in Florida. Roger had come from a family of carpenters, he, so he knew a, two, a thing or two about how to build a house and he decided this house was going to be extra special. He was going to build it entirely by hand. He would cut the logs himself. He would put all of the logs in place himself with his two hands. He would not buy a single machine built piece for his windows or his doors or any other part of his cabin. The cabin was to be entirely his own work made only with his two hands. For 17 summers, 17 summers, Roger left behind his wife and his job and his kids, and he went up to the woods of Pennsylvania and he labored by himself to build this cabin. It was painful. It was detail-oriented. It was tiring work. But it became something that Roger was increasingly proud of. Friends and family knew to ask Roger about his cabin in the woods. The topic would make Roger's (laughs) face light up as he described the labor and the solitude up in the woods building a cabin with his bare hands in painstaking detail. And towards the end of this process, though, somewhere between year 10 and 14, a feeling, then a thought, slowly crept to the front of Roger's mind. He became haunted more and more by a powerful emotion about his log cabin project. He hated it. He despised the cabin. He hated the solitude. He hated the heat. He hated the forever increasing list of rules about how he could and how he couldn't build this cabin. And after several months, if not years, Roger finally admitted this frustration, but he couldn't stop building the cabin and building it the right way. And so he decided to take a long look into the murky waters of his heart his reasons, his motives, his personal history, right? And in the process of self-examination, Roger realized that the cabin that he'd been laboring over as an all-consuming project was not even for himself, it was for his father. You see, he was building this house, worrying about its progress so that he might impress his father, a mostly silent man who was also a master carpenter. Roger was the middle child of many children, so in the middle that one time his entire family forgot his birthday. And so he wanted his, fi- his father's face to light up when he, his son, Roger, was mentioned. And really Roger wanted his father just to really notice him at all, to take him in as who he was. And if it took building a log cabin by hand for 17 summers, he thought for most of that time at least, that it was well worth the effort. It's a small price to pay. So in our passage tonight, Jesus is asking us, what are you building with your life? What are you building with your life? And even more importantly, Jesus is asking you, why are you building it that way? Why are you building your life that way? In the words of the passage, what foundation are you building your house on? What's the foundation that we're building our houses on? And at the heart of Jesus' question is this assumption about life. It's an assumption about life that all of us, Roger, you, me, all of us, all of us live by other people's words to us. All of us are living by other people's words That is, we are building who we are on the words and phrases of significant people in our lives. What they said to us and what they didn't say to us. Perhaps especially at significant moments like graduation. Our future life, our future spouses, our future careers, our future families and social causes, as well as our present tense sense of self, all of these are based on deeply held words that people have spoken over us. Words like be good, try your best. Maybe that word potential. Or maybe you're a coward. Shake it off. Or that word stop. Or like Roger, you've, building, you've been building your life on what someone didn't ever actually say to you. You've been building your life to get someone to say You matter. You know what? I just like hanging around with you. I like being with you. These spoken and unspoken words drive us. They move us to busy ourselves with self-construction and self-actualization and to pursue projects that we long ago stopped enjoying and now secretly despise. So in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29, Jesus is asking us to do a code switch. He's asking us to code switch. Instead, instead we need to hear and we need to live by not other people's words, but his words to us, the words that he speaks over us. Simply, Jesus is inviting you and me to build our life's house on his words about us. That's the invitation of this passage. Build your life house on his words about us. It's a project that still is going to look like future planning, right? It's still going to look like a career and a spouse and causes, but it's going to feel like present tense rest because it's resting on God's foundation, his basis for who we are, not our own. So our passage ends, this passage is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and it ends with some words from Jesus, and then it ends with some words about Jesus. And these words are going to ask us to inhabit this metaphor of a house, and then to examine the person who's helping us to imagine our lives this way. Therefore, our outline tonight is going to be in your handout as usual. and it's going to ask us a few questions about the metaphor and about Jesus himself. Three questions. First, verses 40, uh, 24 through 27, what does Jesus mean by comparing life to two different houses? What's Jesus up to comparing life to two different houses? In other words, what exactly are my life options, Jesus? What are my life options? Second, verses 24 through 27, again, what does Jesus mean by life's rain and floods and wind? Or in other words, how does life's unpredictable weather test our house's foundation? And then third, verses 28 through 29, what does the author Matthew mean by emphasizing who it is it that's saying all these things about our lives? What's Matthew up to? In other words, why does Jesus saying these things about our lives matter? That's what we're looking at. That's where we're going. Uh, I'm going to begin as close to the beginning as I can. Uh, it's a little bit tricky. We're going to do the metaphor. We kind of have to take in swipes. So I'm going to swipe it once, then twice, and then we're going to move on. So let's look first at verses 24 to 27 and that Jesus life-building options. Fair enough? All right. On the outside, casual observation, Jesus' two houses look the same. They even likely use the same building materials. Context-wise, verses 21 through 23, make it seem like both the houses are going to be composed of the same materials. If each house represents a lifestyle, fair enough, if they each represent a lifestyle, then both lives say respectful things about God. Both lives have passion to them. They're both emotional. Both lives seem to serve people at least some of the time. You cannot tell the difference. On the outside, each life is filled with studying, each life is filled with clubs and activities and friends and maybe even a sport. To the casual observer, each house looks designed for a future career and family, a nice settled life, with far-flung vacations, and serving and building some sort of semblance of a community to the casual observer. So what's the difference? Why the, what's the difference between the two houses, Jesus' two ways of living life that he's putting forward? It comes down to different foundations, right? It comes down to one house's builder who digs down beneath the shifting sand until he or she hits solid rock. And then the builder assembles the walls, and the windows, and the doors, and then the roof. The other builder, to the naked eye, to the casual observer, much more efficient. Much more productive, right? (laughs) He or she puts up the whole house while the first builder is still digging. This is because the second builder assembles the house on the ground's sandy topsoil. It just plops the house down as is, right? That's what the second builder does. And initially, it looks like the first builder is the fool. What in the world, first builder, taking all that time, getting it right. <laughs> After all, who has the time, and this is where the metaphor shifts, who has the time and who has the pain threshold to ask hard foundational questions about life? Who could do that, right? How, questions like, who wants to go to the place where we ask, why do I live how I live? But I'm asking you to do that. How do I, why do I live the way that I live? Or how could, how could who I am have something to do with what I do? How could who I am have something to do with what I do? And then if any of those answers lead to anything, how should I live? Does it look different? Does it look same? Does it look some sort combination? That's sort of the questions that are represented by digging down to the foundation rock. But verse 25 tells us this heart-level digging, then trusting, is actually long-term wise. It means that we, if we choose the right foundation, our lives do not fall. They do not literally fall when the weather changes. They do not fail. But in Jesus' metaphor, what is this right, what is this solid rock foundation that we're supposed to build our lives on? Verse 24 is pretty straightforward. It tells us, we are to build the house of our lives on the foundation of Jesus' words. These words of mine. The mine there is emphasized in the Greek by its order of the word. He's saying, these are my words that you're supposed to build your house on, your life on. Every other life foundation is shifting sand, which really means there's no foundation at all there. A sand foundation requires the house of our lives to be absolutely stable because it's not going to be stable. Otherwise, it's just going to quickly sway or collapse if we're not stable, or at least constantly threaten to fall at the given breath of wind. And if we trace Jesus' metaphor even further out, which, as you know, I love to do, (laughs) there's this fragility there, isn't there? There's a fragility because a foundation of sand is equivalent to living by anyone else's words but Jesus. The foundation of sand is equivalent to living by anyone else's words but Jesus' words. Everyone's words to us, everyone's words about us are constantly changing. There's always the potential for change. The same family members who say, I love you, can also say, I hate you. The same friends who say, You're the best to your face, can also say you're the worst behind your back. The same professors who give you an A can give you a C or a D in just a matter of weeks. Happens all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And the same goes for the boss's performance review, present tense or future tense, as well as athletic coaches who can start or bench you any given game for any given reason, it seems like. But in a very conditional world, Jesus' words to us are constant and unchangeable. Jesus' words are unconditional. But what are these words? And where are Jesus' foundational words to us and about us to be found? These words of mine occur at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and that suggests that we should go back to the body, the beginning, and then the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew. And my first temptation, which would be a bad temptation given time, is to go back through and just kind of mark line by line all the different ways that Jesus kind of tells us, uh, and I, this seems extremely helpful, but isn't, tells us all the commands one by one that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount, and write them down like an instruction booklet in order to assemble my life properly and therefore be wise. But you and I, on our own, would never actually get past the first step. <laughs> be poor in spirit. After all, the minute we thought we got past the first step, we would go back to the first step. It's so easy to get prideful about our spiritual humility. Up, oh, I'm poor in spirit. Shoot, not ladder. Back to the beginning. Okay. So, and then there are the other eight Beatitudes and Jesus' directions to be more righteous than the religious professionals and controlling our emotions and our bodies and our words, as well as Jesus' call to love our enemies and never retaliate interpersonally. Right? And and then there's, you got to avoid hypocrisy when you're trying to be spiritual. You got to care more about God and His rule than you and your sovereignty, than your money, and then our security in life. Oh, yeah, and don't get anxious about being anxious, even. Okay, that's going to be really easy. Try that one out. And don't ever judge others. Ever. And navigate the narrow way the hard way, eat the healthy fruit, and don't hang out with false friends who promise false intimacy. Done, right? So easy. (laughs) But like, here's the thing, treating the Sermon on the Mount like a do-it-yourself project is exhausting, and it misses Jesus' central point, the takeaway of all of his words. I like the way that Dale Bruner, who's a New Testament commentator, scholar, describes Matthew chapters 5 through 7. says this way i don't see how a single line of the sermon can be read without feeling summoned to one's knees before god (laughs) that is to faith jesus commands such high quality deeds that we are driven to faith in god's mercy the height of the deeds to which jesus calls in the sermon can only be approached by people walking on their knees the key fact of the sermon is jesus himself it is the disciples' relation to him that makes any doing possible. Here's what Bruner's saying. Before we can do that kind of good, Sermon on the Mount kind of good, Jesus must declare us good. Before we can do that kind of good, Jesus must declare us as good. Therefore, Jesus' foundational words, his primary words to us that that we can build our lives and build our actions out of and on top of, these are his words. You are eternally all right. You are loved. You are forever forgiven. You are cared about. You are from the cosmic heavens cared for. Seniors, sophomores, freshmen, juniors, go in that peace now and forevermore. Amen. Or in the words of St. Augustine, love God and you may do as you please. Love God and you may do as you please. That is because in his love you truly will be pleasing. You will truly be loving. Right? You, You cannot but when you love God to love the way that God loves and that is pleasing to God. Does that make sense? Are we tracking with that? St. Augie? Okay. And so the more we base our lives on Jesus's unconditional words about who we are, so the more we base our lives on Jesus's unconditional words about who we are, the less dependent our happiness or our anxiety or our freedom, the less dependent all of these emotions are on our life conditions. So I'm going to say that one more time more quickly. The more we base our lives on Jesus's unconditional words about who we are, the less dependent our happiness is on life's conditions. Does that make sense? So, and this is a good thing because Jesus is promising a life filled with very mixed conditions, very mixed circumstances, right? So we're, we come to point two of tonight. What does Jesus mean by life's floods and rains and wind? What's Jesus up to there? You see that both the houses, the house built on the rock of Jesus's words, and the house building the shifting sand of other people's words, Jesus tells us that both these kinds of houses will have some bad weather. The rain's going to fall, the floods are going to come, the wind's going to blow and it's going to beat on both houses alike. Jesus doesn't promise a pain-free, trouble-free existence for people who base their lives on his words, contrary to some popular belief. In fact, Jesus promises the opposite. No matter what you believe about him or his words, life is going to be hard at various points. I really appreciate the honesty of the Bible here, especially for those of us who are about to take the next step in life. No matter who you are, no matter what year you are, no matter what your summer plan is or what your next step real world destination is, something's going to eventually happen. If it hasn't happened already, and it will probably happen in some way, shape, or form again. Something's going to eventually happen that will shake the house of who we are to the very foundations. Frederick Beekner gets at this honesty and potential compassion uh, of this truth. There's just such an honesty and a t- potential for compassion in this truth. And he gets at a novel open heart. On a sleepy, warm afternoon... Antonio Parr, the narrator, is trying to teach a group of typical uh, lunch-heavy high schoolers about Shakespeare's play, King Lear. Can you imagine how this is going to (laughs) go? So the bumblebee that's floating at the top of the ceiling is winning, but Antonio Parr asks a generic question about how King Lear changes in Act act 3. You know, that scene where he's with the fool and he's at the edge of the thunderstorm, and unexpectedly... He's asked that question. So how does King Lear, in that moment, with the fool at the edge of the the thunderstorm, how does he change? Generic question. Written into the teacher's guide. And the most popular and attractive girl in the entire school, Laura Fleischman, announces to the class that King Lear says a prayer for the people. And there's, like, silence in the classroom. And in a small, half-apologetic voice, she reads, Poor naked wretches wheresoever you are that by the pelting of this pitiless storm how shall your houseless heads and unfed sides your lopped and windowed raggedness defend you from seasons such as these then mr parr asked the class who are these poor naked wretches that king lear's praying for and greg dixon the pimpliest, least popular person in the school, says, we are. We're the poor, naked wretches that bide the pelting of the storm. And Buechner writes this. He, Greg Dixon, said it to be funny. They were the poor wretches, presumably to have to sit there and listen to Laura Fleischman read blank verse when they could be off somewhere having whatever Greg Dixon thought of as fun. But nobody laughed. For a moment or two, they all felt some intended truth in Greg Dixon's words. Laura Fleischman in the fullness of her time, William Urquhart in his fatness, Greg Dixon in his pimples, Carl West, handsome and bored with the knowledge he could get into anybody's pants in that room that he felt like getting into. They were poor, naked wretches. And at least for a moment, they knew they were. They knew there was a pitiless storm. (laughs) But in verse 25, Jesus also promises there's shelter to those who trust in his unchanging words. It's not just a pitiless storm. There's shelter. There's an ability to withstand. There's an ability to bear up under. There's an ability to weather the pelting of the pitiless storm of life's inevitable suffering. Look, any creed any philosophy, any words to live by seems sturdy when life is working. When it's sunny outside. Pep talks, cheap affirmations, guilty fears, they all fail when life is not working. When we live life on the basis of other people's praise or shame, when we take credit for life's wins and we take on the blame for life's losses completely, The storms of suffering get very personal very fast. They like become like a judgment on our abilities. Like we at a core level can't measure up when things don't go our way. Like we can't do what life expects of us. And so suffering without Jesus' words beneath us causes us to either give up or numb out, or, and this is the Davidson solution, double down. Until one day, you, you lift your head up, and you're going to find yourself, like i found myself several times, like my friend Roger, summer after summer, year after year, bitterly building yourself up, entirely by our own two hands, with a growing list of rules. But a life based on Jesus is often at its best when life is at its worst. Because Jesus' words are not merely human words that flatter or insult us. They don't have to rely on our achievements to become true or to become false. Instead, Jesus' words are grounded in the truth of his historical actions for us. In the words of Dan Doriani, Jesus does what he says. He is what he says. Every word perfectly reflects his mind and his character and his actions. And this is why Matthew ends his account... On the Sermon on the Mount, by highlighting Jesus, Jesus' personal authority in verses 28 through 29, the meat and the potatoes of our last and third and final point. So, verse 28 says about the crowds, they're they're eavesdropping, they're overhearing Jesus' message to the people who've been traveling around as students behind him. And they hear these words, the Sermon on the Mount, and they are astonished. In the original Greek, that's better translated dumbfounded. They're dumbfounded jesus's words are ringed in silence then verse 29 explains that jesus isn't quoting he's not making citations he's not being a scholar to other scholars or a scholar even of the holy scripture he is legislating he is speaking words on the same exact level as scripture as god here on earth and this is amazing to quote new testament scholar dale Bruner again of main importance is not the content of the sermon, but the one who gave it, the impact of Jesus himself. So Jesus isn't saying over us, he's not just saying over us, right? You're all right. Jesus is saying that, and he has backed it up with a life of living perfectly, a historical record of living every letter of the law, every jot and tittle of the Sermon on the Mount, all the way, all 33 years of his life on earth. Jesus isn't just saying, you're loved. He backed it up by laying his life down for you in a recorded historical moment outside of Jerusalem on a cross. Jesus isn't just saying, you are forgiven. He backed it up by crying out as he was nailed up to hang by his hands and his feet on a cross. And he said, crying out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And finally, Jesus isn't just saying, you are cared about and you're cared for. He backed it up by rising from the grave to tell his simultaneously worshiping and doubting audience, his followers. He said, I'm with you to the end of the age. I will always be with you. So look, don't misunderstand me as you go out into finals, the world, some combination of both. (laughs) Embracing Jesus' finished work doesn't mean that we don't have work to do. Oh, we have work to do. (laughs) It just means that you get to do your work differently, and I get to do my work differently. Perhaps the end of my friend Roger's story is going to lead us there. Because, you see, he actually finished his log cabin project in Pennsylvania, in the woods. The last few years were more painful than the other years previous, and his satisfaction was extremely shallow. In fact, only a few years later, Roger ended up selling the cabin that he made for 17 summers by his bare hands for a fraction of the cost that it made, that it cost him to build it. Well, you think... Roger must have seen the error of his ways, right? And never built another house ever again. You know, the house building was the problem, right? The work is the problem. Amazingly, only a few years later, the story continues. Roger actually began to build another home. And this time it was in Florida, not in Pennsylvania. This time it was a new home for his family, not a summer retreat. This time it was built near his family and on the weekends and not solo out in the summer. Okay? This time he didn't do it all by hand. This time he bought factory-made windows and doors and tiles. And though it took a long time still, this time, this time it was a labor out of love and not for love. He gratefully used the gifts of carpentry that he got from his dad instead of working to earn the words of affirmation from his father. So in life, Roger built two different homes, One to prove himself and one to be himself. They look similar enough from the outside, especially to the casual observer. They each represented years and years of hard work. But each house was built for very different reasons. Spiritually, each house has a very different foundation, a very different motive. And in fact, how and why they were built makes all the difference. And so, I'm going to end by asking a few questions. right? Seniors, can I end our last official sermon together by asking a question or four? Sure. <laughs> yes. Okay. Do you, if that's, that's not okay, let me know later. Okay. So, question. What are you building your life? What are, you, what are you building with your life? What are you building with your life? Why are you building your life that way? Whose words... What words are you building your life on? Are you building to prove yourself? Or are you building to be yourself? And would you please remember when the rains fall and the floods come and the winds blow and they beat on you, would you remember on your worst day in the most suffering that Jesus can't actually love you any more than he loves you right then. That he can't actually love you any more than he loves you right now. And please, shameless, I'm cashing all my relationship chips right here, right now, shameless, please, please seek the shelter of a community of people who can remind you of that fact every week for the rest of your life. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time together. Thanks for this group of students. Um, It's a hard, challenging passage, but it's a good one. And I pray that you'd help us to reflect on why we're doing what we're doing and where we're trying to go. And I pray that um, that's especially poignant for the seniors but I think especially that um, it's all of us that struggle with that question. And I pray, Jesus, that you would help us not think we're wasting our time by digging down to the foundation. Assure us and comfort us. Show us your words. Help us to hear them. I pray. In your name,
0: amen.